righty. Well, come on back. <clears throat> uh, and uh, grab your Bible and uh, head over to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 is where we are. Uh, for those of you who weren't in the sanctuary at the beginning, let's do it again. Turn to somebody and tell them you're glad you're there here. How about that? There we go. Make sure everybody ha- hears that. Everybody hears that. <laughs> Good. Okay. Okay, stop. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right. Well, if uh, some of you don't know, uh, we're going to take a team to Hungary and we... Uh, uh, the Lord put us together um, in a, an amazing way through an uh, organization called Migration Aid. Migration Aid serves in the, uh, the shelters for the Ukrainian folks who are there, from uh, obviously from Ukraine. They've kind of funneled through Budapest. And so we'll be working there and uh, doing a lot of that, passing out a lot of gospel materials uh, that have been translated into Hungarian and Ukrainian and Russian and we're going on June 17th, and we'll be back on June 25th. And if you want to help in any way, uh, then pray for us, okay? Please pray for us. And uh, if you, you guys have been supporting the trip financially, and we're uh, helping uh, the missionaries that we're going with um, to run a Bible camp, they will actually do it the week after we leave. And they're going to have both, uh, excuse me, Hungarian and Ukrainian kids in the Bible camp. It'll be very much like a, like a junior high VBS. I mean, and it's not VBS, but you know what I mean? And, and so they'll break out and they'll do things like soccer. They'll do art. They'll do music and some other things. And so uh, we're taking soccer shoes. If you have soccer gear and you want to get rid of it, okay, uh, give it to us and we'll take it to the Ukrainian young people. Uh, if you want to support them, they need to, the Bible camp costs 200 bucks a child, and we're going to try and sponsor as many children as we can. And we have been doing that, and you guys are an amazing blessing, and the Lord is providing. So um, anyway, if you have any questions about that, uh, you can come see me or somebody else who's on the team. Raise your hand if you're going to Hungary. Okay, look around. You could check th- those folks out. So, uh, funny stuff today, uh, my friend, uh, who will remain nameless, he was at a different church listening to the pastor and the pastor said, he was commenting on how well the pastor did. And then, uh, the pastor asked, well, where do you go to church and told him and said, uh, told him about the service and said, the sermons, how long again, how long is that sermon? And so, uh, uh, funny stuff, uh, I remember one time I was at Coffee Tree Roasters. That was my office before uh, we had an office. And um, the pastors, a couple of the pastors there told me their sermon lasted 17 minutes. 17 minutes. I couldn't believe it. So uh, we try to quadruple that. And uh, (laughs) so we'll see how that goes. But here's why, because we're passionate about the word of God. And we think uh, the Bible teaches, and the Bible does teach, that healthy sheep produce healthy sheep. And the way to get healthy is, spiritually, is to know the Word of God, but not just know it. Obey it. So there's tons of people across the world that know a lot about the Bible. Facts. But do they find Jesus in the Bible and obey Him? And that's the key, and you're going to see it even again today. We're in chapter 7, and I would say to you, that if you wanted to get one book other than the Bible, just one book, I would say grab Halley's Bible Handbook. It's 14 bucks on Amazon. It's amazing. It's a handbook, chapter by chapter handbook. But the reason I'm telling you that, it just has an amazing harmony of the four Gospels. And you really need a harmony of the four Gospels if you're going to check out John, if you're in John. Here's why. John's not in a chronological order. In fact, We're now in chapter 7, right? And uh, the book of John uh, goes through, what, 21, 22 chapters? Yeah, 21 chapters. So from chapter 7 through 21, listen to this. It's the last six months of Jesus' life. 
So John was writing for a particular purpose. You get it? And he wants to show you, chapter 20 tells us, that Jesus is the Christ, the one predicted in the Old Testament, and also the Son of God. He wants you to know that he's the Son of God. And the reason he's writing it is so that people will trust and believe and be with him in heaven forever. That's in chapter 20. I mean, John doesn't hide the ball. Sometimes I get uncomfortable when I see some sort of evangelism where they're sort of hiding the ball. Well, there's no hiding the ball with John. John says, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I want you to believe and go to heaven, basically. He doesn't say it that way, but that's what he's saying. And so we don't want to hide the ball. And we've been exploring uh, the book of John. John generally writes, this is fascinating, he writes not so much what Jesus does, he writes more about who Jesus is. Big difference. And the first three Gospels sort of tell you what he does. They do tell you what he is, but not as much as John. And John's Gospel, and this is why I say get a harmony of the Gospels, side by side, columns. I got it right here with me. Columns of what happened and in what book it's in. And it's fascinating. And the reason is, is because 92% of John, 92% is original to John, is unique to the book of John. It's found in no other gospel. Isn't that fascinating? And here we find ourselves in a part of, of the book in which Jesus now is going to enter into uh, resistance, but way more than resistance. See, because in John chapter 5, he healed a man at the pool of Bethesda. Do you remember this? He heals a man at the pool of Bethesda, and oh my, 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 he did it on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders from then on plotted to kill Jesus. And here we start to see that this really comes into focus. I mean, this intensifies right here, and it happens through the rest of the book and culminating in his death and resurrection. So we're into, um, what's the word, tension, Um, uh, dangerous situation. We're into misunderstanding. Um, We're into people uh, betraying others. In other words, it's a lot alike, a lot alike life. Jesus knows what we're feeling. Before we begin, I just want to show you here something. Turn over to the book of Hebrews and go to chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. It's such a liberating verse, I think. And go back down in verse 17. Therefore, talking about Jesus, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren or sister, sistren. That's a joke, but anyway. He had to be made like his brothers and sisters. Why? That he might be a merciful, withholding uh, from us what we deserve, and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Over in chapter 4, it says that he was tempted uh, in all points. Tempted in all points. So in other words, Jesus knows what you're going through. You don't serve a God who just sort of winds up the world and says, go for it, and just leaves it unattended. You serve a personal God who sent his son, who is God, to earth. And the thing that you're struggling with right now, you name it, don't name it, but you get what I'm saying. No TMI. (laughs) The thing that you're struggling with right now He understands how it is to be tempted. He understands what it is to go through it. You get it? See, that's big. That's who you serve. Well, here we get to chapter 7. And it says, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. Now, I just told you, I think, maybe it's all blending together, but I think I just told you that most of what Jesus uh, does here in the book of John is, is mostly concerned about uh, his time in and around Jerusalem and Judea. 
And that's true, but right now he's in the northern part of Israel. It's, he's in the Galilee region. But in this book of John, three times John tells us he goes down from Galilee to Jerusalem, the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of Passover. And today, just follow with me for a minute, because this is central to the learning. He's going to attend in a different way than his brothers. And I did say brothers. Jesus had brothers and sisters. And he's going to attend this thing called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if you look in the great book of Leviticus, everybody track with me here now. I know this is sort of a circular way to learn this, but you need to know it and, or it just doesn't make sense. In the Old Testament book of Leviticus, Leviticus had to do with the way in which the people of God, the Israelites, were going to worship. God prescribed the ways that they were going to worship. And in Leviticus 23, just write that down. Remember Leviticus 23. In Leviticus 23, the Lord established seven feasts or festivals in which the Israelites were to celebrate every year. And they were to do it to honor and to remember and to worship God. But also what's fascinating about these seven feasts in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills every one. They're painting a picture of what Jesus or who Jesus is and what he came to do. Remember, these are in the Old Testament, Leviticus. Here are the festivals. The first one's the Passover, Leviticus 23, 4 and 5. And you know the story of the Passover, I hope. If you don't, that's okay. But if, if you do, great. If you don't, it's when the Lord uh, brought the people up out of Egypt and they were saved because the angel of death passed over a house that had the blood of the lamb on it. Come on, folks. In the New Testament, Jesus is called our Passover lamb. That's festival number one. The next festival, which follows seven days, or excuse me, yes, seven days immediately after the time of the Passover. So sometimes in the Bible, Passover is talking about an eight-day period. Sometimes it's just talking about that first day with the Feast of Unleavened Bread right behind it. And the Feast of the Unleavened Bread is in Leviticus 23 again. It looks back to that time of captivity in Egypt. Uh, and when God commanded and gave uh, the Israelites the command to remove all leaven from their homes. And this is fascinating because once you're counting on the blood over the doorpost and you come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, guess what the Lord asks you to do? Put away all the leaven. And leaven is sin in the Bible. It's a picture of sin. Why? Because leaven puffs up like sin puffs up. Leaven makes things expand. It's used in bread. So anyway, that's uh, that feast. And then there's another feast called the Feast of First Fruits. It's in Leviticus 23, 9 through 14. It's when the barley was planted in the fall and harvested in the spring. You read about it in the book of Ruth. And you would take grain and you would cut it and you would wave it before the Lord and offer him the first it's the first. And remember, our Lord was the first fruit of God's harvest. What does that mean? It means he died and went into heaven. He ascended into heaven. And he said, it says that Jesus is our first fruits. And that makes us cheer. Wow, does that make us cheer? Because that means there's more, this is funny, fruits coming. And that's us. Oh, okay. See, that's amazing. He paved the way to heaven. And now, if you surrender your life to Jesus Christ and trust in him, you're going to be there. And that's what that celebrates and, and signifies. That's the third festival or feast. Then we have the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost or Shabbat. Shabbat, I can't say it. Fifty days after the first fruit. Falls on a Sunday, the day after the Sabbath. And what happened? Do you remember on the first Pentecost after our Lord's resurrection, the Holy Spirit came upon the church and the church was formed, Acts 2. And you could read about that in Leviticus 
23 as well. And then you have now uh, the Feast of the Trumpets. By the way, those first four feasts happen in the spring. The last three feasts happen in the fall. Later in time, get it? And many people, and I would say including me, believe in the church, the first four festivals and what they represent have happened. But the last three haven't happened. And here you go. Feast of Trumpets held on the first day of the seventh month. And it's a day of a trumpet blast and those sorts of things. And it's just a festival and it's, and I could go into it, but I don't want to go into it because I want to get to the Feast of Tabernacles. But remember, when we're raptured, it's going to be signified by a trumpet. Here's the sixth one, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. Ever heard that? That's in Leviticus 23, 26 through 32. And you know this, it's when the great high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. It's a very sober and serious, it's very sober and serious festival. It's not one to laugh and joke. And it, it, the great high priest goes in and presents an offering for the nation of Israel for the year. And of course, you know that, uh, you know, the scapegoat um, picture happens during that time. And that just pictures, you know, what the Lord is doing. Um, I'm not going to go into it today, but uh, it also has some relevance to the nation of Israel, I believe, and all that sort of thing. And the reason I'm not going to go into it is I want to get to the Feast of Tabernacles, the seventh. The Feast of Tabernacles, Leviticus 23, 33-34, uh, here's what happened. Uh, during the time of the Old Testament, you guys got the map that I gave you? If so, great, put that up. If not, well, my mistake. But if you do have the map, put it up there. Uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles was a time in which uh, uh, there was much celebration and much, um, uh, uh, you know, um, remembering worship. And here's why. Because when the Lord took the nation, uh, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Remember, they were supposed to go into the promised land, but because of a lot of different things, including their grumbling and complaining, they didn't go in after a month or so. I keep hoping, I keep hoping. But anyway, uh, they, they didn't go in after a month or so. They actually stayed in the wilderness 40 years. Not days, years. They could have gone right in, but they didn't. And then, but the Lord took care of the Israelites in the wilderness. And guess what he did? He gave them manna. And guess what else he did when they were thirsty? He had Moses strike a rock and water came out. Remember this? Everybody tracking with me? And so the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booze that happens in the fall is a time in which all of uh, uh, the Israelites were to camp out, basically, to remember they're camping out in the wilderness. By the way, even to this day, Jews will, in their backyards, put up a lean-to or a tent, and they'll, they'll, they'll celebrate this, you see. And I believe it's a picture of the millennial reign of Christ, a thousand years. But what I really want to talk to you about is what happened. Man, I just hope it goes up there. <laughs> Because if you see it, it'll be great. It's just my fault. I sent it to him late last night. But here, here's what happened. The priests would come and descend from the Temple Mount, and they would walk. It's about a 400-foot drop. It's about half a mile, three-quarters of a mile or a mile in the old city of David, and they would walk to this place called the Pool of Siloam. And they would have these golden vessels Every single day during the Feast of Tabernacles, they'd fill up the vessels. By the way, Salome means sent one. They would take the vessels and they would go back up 400 feet up to the Temple Mount. And they'd get there right in front of the temple near the altar and they would pour out this water. And they would be singing these psalms, these ascending psalms. And they would quote, Many of the scriptures in the 
um, uh, the prophets, Zechariah, Ezekiel, several, in which, that's not it. <laughs> it's a map. <laughs> I sent it yesterday, but that's okay. It's not their fault. It's my fault. Uh, uh, they would celebrate what they would celebrate is that the Lord provided and protected, and they did it for, listen to this, every day of the feast. It was a grand procession, and they would do this during the day. By the way, at night, up on the Temple Mount, some have said in extra-biblical writings that they would take these torches, and some say they were 70 feet high, and they would light them on fire and burn them at night to commemorate, remember what? God would do at night, he would make a fire at night and it would go before them in a cloud by day. And this would be in contrast to the day of atonement. This would be festival celebrating amazing stuff. That was the feast of tabernacles. And that's going to become important this morning. Look at this. After these things, verse one, Jesus walked in Galilee for he didn't want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. The Jews sought to kill him. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. I just went through all the seven feasts. You're learning and growing like I am. You're going to know the seven feasts, and this is the seventh one. And oh, by the way, in Deuteronomy 16.16, 16, all males had to go back for three of the feasts. Passover... Pentecost and Tabernacles. And just as an aside, in Zechariah, I think, and I believe it says that in the millennial reign, we'll still celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is real important. So the Jews sought to kill him, but now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacle was at hand. And his brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea. Go into Judea. Now, you know this, right? Jesus had brothers. <laughs> the Bible also tells us that he had sisters. And you could go over to Matthew 13, and he actually names the brothers. Matthew does, and Mark does too. James, Joseph, J-O-S-E-S, -E however you want to say that. Judah and Simeon. Now, two of those boys wrote a book of the Bible, and that becomes important. James and Judah, we think it's Jude. So Jesus is half-brothers. Why do I say half-brother? Because they didn't have the same dad. Jesus' dad is the Holy Spirit, in, in a way. You get what I'm saying? <laughs> he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Of course, God's his father, the, the father. But his brothers had a dad. <laughs> Joseph and Mary. And that's important because there's some groups out there that say that's not what happened. But the plain reading of the Bible suggests that's not right. But here's the point. His brothers don't or say to him, depart and go into Judea that your disciples may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Watch this. This is important. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. By the way, there's a psalm. You could look it up to later in 69, Psalm 69, verse 8. That's a prophecy about how his brothers would reject him and then come to believe him. But here, his brothers don't believe him. But watch. They come to believe in him. James and Jude are called upon by the Holy Spirit to write a book of the Bible. What was the difference the resurrection of Christ. Think about it. They didn't put his trust in him, and it must have been a real interesting dynamic at home. You imagine, you know, the, 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 um, the afternoon conversation or the play conversation of James, Joseph, Judah, and Simon kicking the can. I can't believe Jesus. He never does anything bad. We get in trouble. He doesn't do anything, man. What's wrong with this guy? He never participates with us. It must have had been going on. And here, isn't it interesting? Watch this. They say to him in a very worldly way, 
You want to improve your ministry? Go to where the crowds are. You're not getting that. It's very popular. Anybody can raise a crowd. Hey, go to the concerts. Go to the places where the people are. Uh, Do great big marketing studies. Throw money into marketing. Give people what they want. Tell them what they want. Show them what they want. Do that, and you're going to grow a, a great big following. That's what the brothers are saying. They're not even believers. It's the way of the world. It creeps into the church, folks. You see it all over the place. God help us to just be on God's timetable, not our timetable. Because here, Jesus says something interesting. You and I and we all read it and go, what's he doing? But here's what he's doing. He's saying, no, 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 no. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. Remember, write it down. Jesus is on the Father's timetable. He does nothing unless he hears from the Father. It's not the same ministry that his brothers have, if they have one. They're not, they're not believers yet. They say, go down. There's a popular crowd. Remember, there's a route that you follow that's outside of Samaria, down basically the Jordan River, and all of the families would caravan down that way. And he's saying, man, let's get in the caravan. Or they're saying, let's get in the caravan. Let's, you know, we can talk to all the people, and then the crowds will be at the Feast of Tabernacles. You can, man, you've just lost some disciples. That was chapter 6. That was chapter 5. Disciples left you. Let's gain them back. Let's get people in the church, more giving, more money. That's what they're saying. It's just like American Christianity. And Jesus says, wait, wait a second, guys. My time hasn't come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You know, Jesus is full of grace and truth. There's just was something about Jesus And there is something about Jesus. When people encounter him, there's this gracefulness there where they're attracted in some ways, but yet there's this conviction. There's this conviction when you bring up the name of Jesus. Just do it. Here, do it tomorrow. Get in a conversation at work. Talk about God and spiritual things. People will be like, yeah, you know, harps will be going off. Halos on their heads. Oh, that's so wonderful. That's wonderful. Oh, by the way, we're going in Jesus' name. Shoot, crickets. They might even report you to HR now. It's okay. Talk about God all you want, but don't bring up the name of Jesus. The reason is because the world hates him. Because why? His life is convicting. He convicts people in the healthiest and most wonderful way, telling them that they need a savior. And he says to them, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. My my time hasn't come. You could go back through John and see it everywhere. Two, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, 7, verse 6, 8, 30, 8, 20, 12, 23, 13, 1, 17, 1. He just says it over and over again. It's one of the themes of John. He's only on the Father's timetable. Man, should we learn to live according to that. Remember at the wedding, his mom said, hey, man. He didn't say man. He said, hey, son, <laughs> we need some wine. And she did something really wise. She just told him the need and then left it up to Jesus when and where and how. Some of us need to learn that. We boss him around like he's our butler. He's on the timetable of his father. We want to be like that, right? And so he says, you go up to this feast. I'm not yet, circle yet, so you won't be bothered going up to this feast. He never told him he wasn't going to the feast. He just said, I'm not going yet, for my time has not yet fully come. He understood, and he told them point blank, your ministry, your, your life is different than my life. I have a ministry, and my, I'm connected to the Father. And when the Father tells me to go, that's when I'll go. Remember, he's getting to be uh, to the crucifixion on a certain day. It's prophesied. On a certain day, he knows that day. The father knows that day. If he goes too early, if he divulges uh, too much, that wouldn't be a good thing. But here's what I want you to see. I know you you guys look tired today. It's like summer blues. And it's, what, January or June 5th. Wow, wait till August. We'll really be bad. But 
This is something that should just melt your heart. And that's this, is that God here is the one that's in control. They think they're in control. The people, the Jews, the religious order, they're going to get him and kill him, and they're not. They think they're putting Jesus on trial and arresting him. He's arresting them. He is under control here. He is the one. The wheels haven't fallen off here. Look at this. And when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. In other words, he just said, I'm going to go when the right time is. When the Father tells me, that's when I'm going to go. God's in control. Man, that's a big word. That's a, a wonderful word for our life. They've got people graduating. They don't know what they're going to do. They don't know what they're going to do, right? You've got people in the pandemic still worried about this, still worried about that. You've got people worried about the election and can't go to sleep at night because of stuff like this. Woo! This just goes whoo, and settles it all. God's in control. I understand, he says, that you're going through difficult times. By the way, anybody here became a Christian and their family didn't understand? Okay, well, then this, this uh, portion of Scripture should be an amazing blessing to you because Jesus knows how you feel. His brothers are like, they're almost like mocking him. Why don't you go down, man? You could get a big following if you go down and do some miracles down at the festival. Go now. Don't wait. <laughs> he says, I'm going to do what the Father tells me to do. How about that one? And Jesus, Hebrews tells us, understands if you have trouble with your family. I remember going to a... <laughs> I'm a big partier in high school, or not high school, college. I mean, big partier. I'm, I'm the one that plans the parties. I'm the one that gets the people to come. Okay? I'm the campaigner for the parties. And somebody shared the gospel with me, and I went to a uh, um, Campus Crusade for Christ week-long conference over Christmas break one time. And I remember coming home, and my parents were wonderful and lovely and all that sort of thing. And we went to the mall, the local mall, and had lunch. And I just regurgitated it all about what happened and how I'd give And they, they were just like this. What? And they were wonderful and lovely, and I love them, and they're great. But they were, they just, well, we've gone to church our whole life. What do you mean? What do you mean you've given your life to the Lord? We've gone to church for 20 straight years. Why, why would you need to do that? Anybody heard stuff like this? And praise the Lord. I mean, after this, they were receptive, but... But the point is, you know, you're all jazzed up, you're ready, you're going to go, and you go, and it's like, it's like they drank, you know, sour lemonade or something, you know what I mean? And they're like, what? So you guys know, and it causes lots of problems amongst families. By the way, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring violence or come by the sword. You're like, what? What does that mean? And what it means is this, that the message of the gospel is going to divide people. You're, you're like, wait a minute, that's, that's weird. But it is because you, of what Jesus just said. I can share the gospel within a family, and brother one is like, wow, amazing. Holy Spirit comes, hits his heart, and the other one says, this is nonsense. And now you're like, whoa, wait a second, because here's why. If you're sitting here, Jesus gives you no room to just dabble in Jesus. He says, I and the Father are one. If you come to me, I'm the bread of life. You'll have eternal life. He told Nicodemus, the ruler, that's the only way. God so loved the world. He gave his only son, whoever believed in him. See, Jesus doesn't give you that option of just sort of being on the fence. He says, you have to come to me to have eternal life. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a glorious thing. Well, watch this. Now it sort of shifts, but when his brothers, verse 10, had gone up, gone up where? To Jerusalem from Galilee. They actually go north, go south, but they go up in elevation. So when they go up to the festival, when he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. I think what this means is it without fanfare. He's saying back to us here, Jesus didn't take their advice. He didn't go for the crowds. He didn't go for the concerts. He didn't go for the marketing ploys. 
He went just minding his own business. I wonder too, this is my own speculation. So you take this for the way you want to take it or not. Totally disbelieve it if you want. I wonder if he went back through Samaria. Because remember, there's one route basically. Anyway, that's my own thinking. But he did it in secret. And then the Jews sought him at the feast. That means the religious order, the important people, quote unquote, the people of religion at the feast sought him and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people. Watch, you have the religious big shots, the priests, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. By the way, not all of them believe the same thing. And they're sort of enemies, but when it comes to hating Jesus, they're of one accord. So they go up to the feast, Jews seek him, but then the common people, the people concerning him, there was, there was much complaining among the people concerning him because some said, watch this, he is good. It's just like today. Oh yeah, he's a good prophet. You got many religions that say he's a good prophet. The Muslim faith, good prophet. Jesus is a prophet. Concerning him, some say he is good. Others said, oh, no, on the contrary, he deceives people. Everything he says is wrong. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. That tells you the climate at the time surrounding Jesus. They know that if they say, well, he's got some good things to say, and I want to listen more, it says later in the book of John, they'll be thrown out of the synagogues. Their whole life would be disrupted. So they kept it quiet. They didn't want it to get to the religious people. There's a debate here about his character. Is he good or is he off base? Is he whatever? You see it. Now about the middle of the feast. Now watch. Watch this. I know you're tired. I know it's summer. I know. But if you catch this, man, it'll change your world. Now about the middle of the feast. What's happening during the feast? Everybody's up there on that temple mount. I mean, throngs of people. People are surrounding. Oh, I wish we had the map. But anyway, throngs of people. CCSP tech team, email, go there. But anyway, Gmail. Man, Gabe even works for Google. We can't figure this out. I'm kidding. It's not his fault. It's my fault. I should have alerted them. Up on this temple, there's throngs of people, and they're just, you know, just, it's just, and it's, it's party time. It's celebration. This is celebratory. Loud. Praising the Lord, singing the songs, and the priests, the anticipation, they have to walk, you know, that mile, the 400 feet down the hill into the old city of Jerusalem, fill everything up at the pole of Siloam. And as they come, you could just imagine the anticipation of them walking up in the procession. And as they come through the crowds, the crowds parting, and they walk right over to the temple area, get near the altar, and they pour this water out. And you know what they would pray? They would pray for the Messiah. They would quote the scriptures in Isaiah and other places about the Messiah and about how he was going to fulfill the thirst of the people. He was, God was going to pour out his spirit on a dry and thirsty land and, and all of that. And the people would clap and shout and jump around and say, yes, Lord, thank you so much. And they would do it every morning. And this was part of the feast. Now watch this. Halfway through the feast, it says, about the middle of the feast. By the way, did I tell you this? If I didn't, I can't, I can't remember. The feast is seven days, Leviticus 23 tells us. Seven days plus one day. That's important. The first day was a holy convocation, sort of a quiet day, sort of a thinking day, you know, a somber day. Then the, the days in between, it was celebratory, but then... It was a seven-day feast plus one. On the eighth day, they would have another somber, quiet day. And here, about the middle of the feast, Jesus goes up into the temple and he teaches. Now think about this. They know he's from or think he's only from Galilee. That's in the north. They think he's from Nazareth, and he is from Nazareth. That's not where he was born, though, folks, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And they know that he's part 
of a family that comes from a builder's son. I think it's a builder. I don't know if it's a carpenter. Because the word for, they use in the, in the New Testament for Joseph is he's a builder. And if you go to Israel, man, there ain't much wood. There's a lot more uh, stone. But whatever. They know he's with a mom named Mary and a dad named Joseph. And they know he's from Galilee, from the Nazareth area. But, he, and, but they don't know that he went to the, uh, the rabbinical schools. They don't think he did. And he goes up into the uh, temple and taught... See, if you think at the first part of this verse that Jesus is scared, you got another thing coming. Because for him to march into the temple and teach, bold, courageous, he knew what he had to do. And he goes in there and he teaches. And the Jews, even the high-ranking religious folks, marvel, saying, how does this man know letters having never studied. In other words, they're impressed with how intellectual he is, but there's something more here to what they say. Not only, you see, because the rabbis taught the authority. Listen to what I'm saying. But the thought here in this phrase is Jesus taught from authority. Do you see the difference? They thought, oh, well, rabbis, they can learn the stuff and regurgitate the stuff. And they're good at it. They know the stuff, the, the information. That's not what it's saying here. They marveled at how he had authority over this, and it seemed to just come from him. He had authority. You get it? So they say this. Now, you know that they already have talked about and marveled at his works, chapter 5, verse 17, and that he was given judgment by the Father, chapter 5, 30. But now watch this. My doctrine isn't mine. Now, when he's saying this, people who are in the know, the religious teachers and experts in the law, oh, he's going to talk about where he gets his doctrine because his doctrine is right on and it's authoritative. And he says this. Now, remember, it's the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody importance there. He says, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. That one right there is like the mic drop thing. Boom. They're like, wait, 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 wait a second. Who sent you? Who is it that sent you? Is it rabbi such and such? Is it this rabbi? But wait a minute. We know you're probably not talking about a rabbi. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Now we got to pause here for a second because I don't think you know what you just read. Listen to what Jesus says here. If anyone wills to do his will, the Father's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my authority. I want you to see what Jesus doesn't say here. Study more. Earn another few letters behind your name. Is there anything wrong with studying? No, I love to do it, and you guys love to do it. Studying's great. Is there anything wrong necessarily with getting your degree at a seminary or anything? No, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But here's what Jesus is telling us, and it's astounding. I don't think you're getting it. If you want to know the will of the Father, yes, study's good, but you're going to know concerning whether the doctrine that Jesus says or not is true when you obey. Ah. Okay, we got to go home because you're not getting it. <laughs> Let me read you something. Is our Lord here suggesting, I'm reading from Warren Wearsby, a pragmatic test for divine truth? Is he saying try it? If it works, it must be true, and thus suggesting that if it doesn't work, it must be false. No, that's kind of a test would lead to much confusion. No, our Lord's statement goes much deeper. He was not suggesting a shallow taste test, but rather the deep personal uh, commitment of the person to truth. The Jews depended on education and authorities and received their doctrine secondhand, but Jesus insisted that we experience the authority of truth personally. Are you getting that? It's fine to come here and listen to the pastor. 
I'm not comparing myself with Jesus, by the way, but you, you get what I'm saying? It's fine to come here and to be fed. Wonderful. But until you experience the authority of truth personally, what does it mean? The Jewish leaders were attempting to kill Jesus, yet at the same time, they claimed to understand God's truth and obey it. Think about that. I'll read it again. Because you know, you, I don't know if you got that. The Jewish leaders are attempting to kill Jesus, yet at the same time, they claim to understand God's truth, and they were obeying it. This proves that an enlightened and educated mind is not a guarantee of a pure heart or a sanctified will. <gasps> Some of the world's worst criminals have been highly intelligent and well-educated. If we really seek God's will, then we will not worry over who gets the glory, of course. Here's what uh, G. Campbell Morgan, because that's the next verse. I want you to see this, though. This is a passage, G. Campbell Morgan says, of which we have often made wrong use. Many people say it to mean that if we will to do God's will, we shall know what God's will is. That's not what this is saying. But that's not the statement. It's rather that if we will to do God's will, watch this, we shall know whether his teaching is from God or not. Now watch. The attitude of soul for the detection of final authority is that of willing to do God's will. And all of you are saying, great, I'm willing to do that. Okay, try this one out. Die to self. Pick up your cross daily. Bless others higher or esteem others higher than you esteem yourself. Watch this. Last sentence. When men or women are wholly, completely consecrated to the will of God and want to do that above everything else, then they find out that Christ's teaching is divine. That is the teaching of God. Wow. That is an amazing scripture. So I would say, you feeling stuck, dry, wondering where God is? What is the last thing the Lord asked you to do and you didn't do it? Go do that. Catch it? Does the Lord ask you to start this or do this and you, you sort of flamed out? Well, if the Lord's asked you to do it, do it and be faithful. Well, here we go. Keep going. Verse uh, 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. You see, Jesus sought the glory of the Father. As teachers, we should not say or feel, wow, I did a great job today. We should be like, wow, the Lord was revealed today, and he gets the glory. When you're sharing with your friends, it's not so you can be a friendly person or people will like you. It's whether or not they see the glory of the Lord in the things that you're saying. Do you get the, you get the deal? That's what Jesus said. Did not uh, Moses give you, verse 19, the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Now watch this. The common people were like, what? The people answer and say, what? What do you mean? You have a demon. That's not true. Who's seeking to kill you? They apparently didn't understand that their leaders... We're seeking to kill him. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. What was that work? Healing the guy at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. I did one work, and you're beside yourselves, he says. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, because God gave it to Abraham first, codified under Moses, that the men should be circumcised. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath because here's why. <laughs> Remember, you got to think this through. Remember in the Old Testament, it says that uh, a male shall be circumcised on the eighth day. Remember that? Well, what happens if the eighth day lands on a Sabbath? Well, the Jews go, oh, that's okay. That's not working. Oh, man, that's a lot of work if you ask me. But anyway... That wasn't working. And, and Jesus here is saying, wait a second. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses shouldn't be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? He goes, think about how you're thinking of this. 
You can wound a man on the Sabbath, but when I make a man whole, I violated the Sabbath. It just, it, it, here's what he's saying. When your man-made traditions do that, and it, it's sick, and it's awful, <laughs> that's not authentic Christianity. When we get duped into these man-made traditions that ignore the heart of God to heal a man, well, that's nothing at all. And he says, don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. In other words, think. It makes no sense that you could wound somebody and it not be a Sabbath violation, but I heal somebody and it's a Sabbath violation. All right, now watch. Now, some of them from Jerusalem, these are the people from Jerusalem, said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. See, they think he's from Nazareth. And they're sort of referring here to the Old Testament prophecy that talks about the Messiah coming from where? Bethlehem, the house of bread, the city of David. However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ come, no one knows where he is from. There was a rabbinical tradition at the time. It's sort of based on a couple scriptures in the Old Testament that the Messiah would just appear out of nowhere and go right to the temple. And they're going, well, we know where he's from, so it can't be the Messiah. That's what they're saying there. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple. Listen, he cried. I don't know if it wasn't cry, cry this way. He was yelling. He was passionate. It wasn't mumbling. It wasn't quiet. And Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying, you both know me and you know where I am from and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. By the way, only God is true, whom you do not know, but I know him. Watch this. This is the one that gets him. Jesus says, I know God, the father. I know the father for I am from him and he sent me. And they're right in the middle of the feast. And he's right at the pinnacle of all their worship and social structure. And he yells this out. Therefore, they sought to take him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. It's all over the book of John. It's everywhere. It's a theme. God's in control. God's protection is on him until the time that is ready. God, and he moves according to all that God says. Boy, I want to do that, don't you? And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more sign than these, which this man has done? They're impressed. How could someone so bold come right up to here with everybody against him and yell and scream boldly, but with love and grace and truth and tell them he's from the Lord. He comes straight from heaven is what he said. I'm from heaven in the middle of the feast of tabernacles. That's what he said. And the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring verse 32 concerning him and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little longer and then, or a little while longer, and I'm going to go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. And that's going to take about six more months. Get it? We're six months away from the crucifixion, but it is tense now. But they can't lay a hand on it. And then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go? So that we shall not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greek? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me and where I am you cannot go or come? The ascension. And now watch. Here it comes. So on the last day, are you all, you guys all have the background now. On the last day, on the last day of what? The seventh feast. The feast of the tabernacles. The joyous feast. The loud feast. On the last day, what is the last day? Is it the seventh day or the eighth day? I don't know. If you read any commentator, 50% of the commentators are going to say it's on the seventh day, and 50% of the commentators are going to tell you it's on the eighth day. But whichever day it is, let's explore it. On the last day, think about it. If it's on the last day, it's on the last day in which the procession has made itself. He's now not inside the temple. 
on the last day, uh, they would bring those uh, gold uh, implements up, those containers up, and they would cry out one last day. Now, you're going to remember, this is the last feast of the year. This is the big hurrah. This is the end of the feast until the next spring. They're going to give it all they got. And here he comes, and he stands up, and he says this, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You see the symbolism? He's saying, you guys thought about it in the wilderness that you were thirsty. And the Lord provided by Moses striking the rock and water coming out. And the Lord provided. But the Lord has now provided for you forever, he's saying. That if you'll come to me and drink, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, watch this, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Watch this. You don't just drink the water. You do do that, but you become a channel of living water for others, folks. Okay, now time out. That's if it was the seventh day. But what about if it was the eighth day? If it was the eighth day, this is fascinating, because guess what would happen? The priest would still, oh, the priest would still walk down from the mountain 400 feet to the pool of Siloam. Guess what they didn't have, or if they did have them, guess what they didn't do? They didn't fill up the water. And they would do it quietly, and there would be no loud cheering at this time, and they'd walk back up, and they'd get up to the top, and they would show that they had no water on the eighth day. If it's the eighth day, they'd show that they had no water. And it would symbolize two things. It would symbolize, wow, the Lord did provide in the wilderness, so we got our water. But it would also symbolize that they were waiting for the Messiah. And if it's the eighth day, at that point, Jesus stands up. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. See, this is the gospel right here. This is the whole of the gospel. People are dying they're unsettled spiritually and physically. They're unsettled. They're anxious. They don't know, you know, they, they chase this thing in life and it doesn't work out or it's not fulfilling. Just ask Tom Brady after his like gazillionth Super Bowl title. He said, is this all there is? Tom Brady, man. And that's what everybody's finding. Is this there all there is? And there's this unsettledness in people, in life. And the unsettledness, even if they don't know it, is because their sins aren't forgiven and they haven't been reconciled back to the Lord. And he's saying if you thirst in that way, the greatest way, if you've never found thir uh, satisfaction in me, let him, anybody can come, anybody, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Drink what? Drink in the life of Christ. Surrender your life to Christ. Remember, what happens spiritually when you surrender your life to Christ? Here's what happens spiritually. Christ is in you, but somehow, some way spiritually, you're in Christ. It's an intimate relationship. And if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, and that believe is not just mental assent. Oh yeah, he's the Christ. Yeah, I believe that. No, this is a giving over of a life. Your life for his. You exchange it. Lord, my life for yours. You come into my life. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, watch this, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Your life will be refreshing and joyful and full and exciting and adventuresome. And it could never happen if you didn't drink it in. And if this happened on the eighth day, oh my gosh, the quietness, the solitude, the symbolism, and Jesus with his boldness says this. By the way, he's saying it to you right now. If you've never surrendered your life to Christ, he's saying, do you want rivers of living water or you just want to be parched your whole life? He doesn't want that for you. He wants his life in your life. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Wow. What happens when you surrender your life to Christ? The Holy Spirit comes into your life immediately. Bang! 
whether you feel it or not, whether firecrackers go off in your mind or spiritual life, like Peter Brady or whatever, that, that might not happen. But the Bible says when you surrender your life to Christ, God comes in, the Holy Spirit of God comes into your life, and he gives fresh fillings and refillings, and sometimes we leak and we need him, and he just fills us to overflowing so that other people will be refreshed too. You don't hoard it to yourself. You give it out. You're a channel of living water. And that just says to me, don't you want to be a blessing to others? Then forget about yourself. Did you hear what I said? Give your life away. Don't, don't be a consumer Christian. Just checking it off. Don't. You'll never have this. You're to be, you're, you're designed. God is blessing you so his life will flow out to others wherever you are, whatever the Lord's called you to. Maybe it's a homeless ministry or a letter writing ministry or a, a, a nursing home ministry. I don't know what it is, but be a channel of living water to others who need to uh, drink from the well. What is God calling you to? Well, many, watch this. Many from the crowd, when they heard this, said, truly, this is the prophet. That's a reference to Deuteronomy 18, when Moses said, a greater prophet than I would come. Others said, well, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem? They were right, and Jesus did come from there. They just didn't know it. So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Why? Because it wasn't his time yet. God was protecting him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to him, why have you not brought him? And the officers said, hey, we tried, but nobody ever spoke like this. And we got mesmerized by how authoritative and beautiful it was. And the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And Nicodemus, who's mentioned three times here in this book, always says that he was the one that came by night, that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? In other words, Nicodemus is saying, give him a chance. What are you guys doing? And they answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went, this is, this is amazing. And everyone went to his own house the comfortable went back to their comforts. But watch the next verse. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Why did he go there? To pray. To stay in contact with his father. And here's what I think this is telling us. If you've never surrendered your life to Christ, you've chased down every alley of satisfaction like the Rolling Stones tell you to do. It might be fun for a time, it might be okay, but when you get down to the end of it, it doesn't satisfy. And you have to retreat and find your way again, and you go down another alley, and that doesn't, and you're, aren't you just tired of that? Well, Jesus says, I've got the answer. It's rivers of living water. The Holy Spirit comes into your life, and you're totally satisfied. Wow. There can be things, there can be disagreements, there can be tension, there can be terrible circumstances or great circumstances, but it doesn't matter because you have Jesus and he has you. And when you go through this, I just want you to see, it's interesting, isn't it? Disbelief, belief. It's all throughout the chapter. Somebody doesn't believe, oh, somebody believes. Oh, somebody doesn't believe and they're mad at Jesus. Some. You get it? It's the theme of John. He's trying to show you what it takes to believe. It takes a move of the Spirit. <laughs> and if you're here and you've never surrendered your life to Christ, well, today's the day. The Holy Spirit is calling you now. <laughs> if you're here and you've been cruising in your Christianity, you're just a consumer Christian, here's what the Lord wants for you. Not that. He wants you to give your life away so that others can drink what you have. So here, I'm going to pray. And I think we're going to do one more uh, worship song together. And uh, I want you to give your life to Christ if you've never done that. 
But if you're cruising and you know you're cruising, if you're just checking off the boxes in a mechanical, religious way, don't do that. It would be a sad thing to go through life when you have the power of the Holy Spirit to minister to others who are hurting. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you this morning, and I pray for anyone here who's never surrendered their life. Maybe they're investigating the claims, your claims. I pray that this person right now would give their life to you, Lord, and I pray they'd come up after and talk about it. Lord, I pray if there's any objections, well, could there be any more objections than in this chapter? And yet, Lord, you gave us the truth that you are the living water. You'll flow out of a person's heart by your spirit. Lord, if there's people here, and I start with myself, by the way, who are just cruising, Lord, we don't want to cruise anymore. Lord, help us to lay our lives down for others, not be so concerned about ourselves. Lord, help us to give our lives away. In Jesus' name, amen.